And that music can only mean one thing, another edition of the Delaware Valley Journal on the air. I'm Michael Graham. Thank you so much for joining us. Coming up in a few minutes, he's at the center of one of the hottest stories in the Delaware Valley this week, this year. The release of Bill Cosby from prison. You're going to hear from attorney Bruce Castor uh, coming up. But first, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in Pennsylvania politics with our Politico extraordinaire, Charlie O'Neill. Charlie, how are you doing? Good, Michael. How are you? Uh, I'm doing better than Charlie Giroux, who we talked to last week. Can you believe <laughs> as a because you're a current flack. I'm a former flack. How the hell does a flack run for? We know how much it stinks to be a candidate. What the heck was he thinking? Well, I think it really goes to prove that he has his heart in it. He knows what he's getting into more so than most candidates do. So uh, when, you know, your heart's in it, it certainly is going to make you work a little bit harder than the rest. I so. think he's been drinking. That's what I put it down to. And by the way, that's complete <laughs> speculation on my part. I've never seen Charlie Giroux sober. I mean, take a drink, take a drink. But uh, more on that coming. And there are a lot of candidates getting in and out of the race. It's, it's fascinating. But let's talk about what happened specifically in Harrisburg, the budget got signed. That's one thing. Were you surprised that the budget came on through? I personally was a little surprised just given how lofty Governor Wolf's goals were going into this budget. And it truly was the last budget. He has a fighting chance to get some of his initiatives done. Mm -hmm. Next year, obviously, he'll be working on a budget, but it will be under the specter of a new governor right. coming in. So I, I was a little surprised that he didn't push harder to get some of his initiatives done. Not surprised that they did not get done. But ultimately, um, it, it wouldn't have been a shock to me had he tried to drag the process out a little bit longer. But ultimately, when those federal dollars came in, he was able to plug a hole in the budget and make sure that his favorite projects were funded, his priorities were funded, even though he didn't get the tax increases he wanted, it, 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 at the end of the day, it makes sense for him to sign it and to stave off a, another budget stalemate. And the Republicans got what they wanted. For example, they continue to, to support charter schools and want to see charter schools expand. They got money for that. They got uh, relief for businesses, et cetera. So the Republicans were happy? Yeah, and I think the biggest thing the Republicans got out of this was a commitment of putting some of those federal dollars in the rainy day fund. Uh, the last time we had federal dollars raining down on the state was back uh, with the era funding with the, uh, you know, the Obama shovel ready stimulus right. program. And what ended up happening was most of that money was put towards public education. Everyone knew it was a one time deal, one time shot of money. Sure. It was supposed to be spent on infrastructure and long term projects, but it wasn't. It went to teacher salaries. Sure. It went to increasing teachers. Basically, many school districts went on a spending spree. Um, and then the next year, Governor Corbett takes over. And the question is, well, why aren't we being funded at the level we were before? Um, they felt <laughs> like it was a cut. And right. in some respects, I suppose it is a cut because their overall number went down. But the state spend was just as high, if not higher exactly. than it was the year before. So there really were some lessons learned from that in not artificially inflating budgets and the money that is being given out, folks are being made clear, this is a one-time deal. Don't get used to this type of spending. So $50 million going towards nursing homes, that's not sustained. That's just a one-time shot to help them recover from coronavirus. So um, I think they were smart, right. but they also learned from the lessons of the past, which is very key 
uh, for whomever takes over the governorship in in 2022. So let's do another story. Let's do another story that has a similar dynamic. You have the election of 2020, which was a weird election, a coronavirus election. You had a primary amid a coronavirus, you know, or, you know, in, earlier in 2020, and so people had to do weird things. People who had never dropped a ballot in a Dropbox didn't know what a Dropbox. Last time they heard Dropbox, they think. Uh, you know, Al Gore had the Social Security money in it. They're not sure. Was that a Dropbox or a Lockbox? You had all this early voting. You had his, and then what happens after that strange election happens? States start saying, "Okay, we want to go back to normal." And people who want very, you know, loose voting rules says, "No, you're restricting the vote. You're, you know, Jim Crow. You're denying." And in fact, all you're doing is you're going back to nor, you know, the, to how things work normally. And uh, part of that, you know, the lesson of 2020 is Republicans wanted to put some rules in for this new world about drop boxes and about early voting. And Governor Wolf vetoed it. Uh, talk about the merits of the bill and then talk about the politics of the bill, Charlie. Well, the, the merits are very important because ultimately when Act 77 was passed by the legislature in October of 2019, it was never, of course, envisioned there would be a pandemic. But it was also never envisioned that the Department of State was going to take that bill and turn it into what they implemented. Drop boxes were never something that was contemplated in that bill. Uh, this idea of curing ballots or of counting ballots that were either unsigned or undated was absolutely not, not contemplated. Uh, not, neither was this idea that ballots would be accepted after the election. In fact, there was a hard and fast deadline put in statute of 8 p.m. on election. So the bill itself was absolutely distorted by the Department of State and then affirmed by the liberal uh, justices on the Supreme Court. It's a 5-2 court. So Wolf was basically able to take the law and then implement what he wanted, not what was passed by the legislature. So the legislature, you know, comes into this basically saying that there were good things in 2020. There were bad things. Let's fix it. And it's a very common practice in Harrisburg, very common that you would have a bill, a major initiative that's passed, and then the legislature goes back a year or two later and says, well, we have some issues. Uh, Let's address those. I was honestly very surprised that the legislature had agreed to curing ballots Right. I was a little surprised they had agreed to drop boxes. Uh, I was a little surprised in some of the concessions that they made. Um, but again, in the spirit of compromise, it makes sense that you would do that. So politically, it's probably going to end up being a win for Wolf and the Democrats because he's not going to have to deal with the fallout here. What I expect will happen is that this the voter ID, which was part of this proposal, will end up going to the voters. Ultimately, it's going to be a question on the ballot. Should you be required to have a voter ID to vote in an election? Yes or no. Um, That, unfortunately, for Republicans, won't really truly be able to happen until uh, late 2022. They're going to have to pass that in this session and then pass it in the beginning of 2022. So in theory, you could have it in the primary of 2022. although not very likely. Right. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're going to have to get it in two consecutive sessions. So let me interrupt you right there because I, you said something that I don't understand. You said that this is going to, you know, probably be politically a win for 
Governor Wolf and the Democrats, but you said that voter ID is going to be on the ballot. I, I don't. I can't yes. put those two together because polls show that not only do people support voter ID, but people in the you know uh, what are becoming more and more liberal suburbs of the Delaware Valley support voter ID. People of color support voter. I mean, I, pretty much everybody except Governor Wolf and AOC support voter ID, which seems like such a winner. And that's why I wonder. You know, he's not running for reelection, but his brand, the Democratic Party, has to run every two years. I, I see I, this doesn't seem like a smart place to brand yourself. When when Stacey Abrams, the, the you know, woman who ran in, in Georgia and lost badly and then, you know, spent months telling people the election was stolen, when even she says, oh, I've always loved voter ID, then you know that you've got a consensus in favor of voter ID. Yeah, the reality is that Pennsylvania does have voter ID if you're voting by mail. Um, I, I voted by mail and you have to have your driver's license number or a social security number or some type of identification uh, above and beyond what's required at the polls. You know, when you go to the polls, all you have to do is sign the book. Um, but the reason I, I say I think it's a win for Wolf and, and the Democrats is they get to make hay once more that Republicans are coming after your voting rights. Uh, Republicans are trying to rig the system. Republicans are believing in some uh, Trump conspiracy that the election was stolen. And they get to continue to play that card, which plays very well in Philadelphia and the suburbs. Um, so that, that's why I see it as a win. They, they get to continue to run on the line that we're the party that's standing up for your right to vote. Um, what they're not saying is that, you know, we're the party that's also making fraud uh, a lot easier and we're also the party, by the way, in Governor Wolf's case, that, that signed legislation that said, and oh, by the way, if you vote by mail, I still need a driver's license number or, or a social security number to verify you are who you say you are. Um, so, you know, it's ironic, but it plays well and that type of messaging plays I, well. I predict that, well, you know, the part of the problem is you do have the Trump effect. If you could take the Trump effect off the table, this would be a one would be a clear win for Republicans, just because not because they're so smart or good, but because that's where the voters are. The voters are overwhelming with voter ID. But I want to move on because something else happened, uh, a ruling from the Supreme Court. And it was about an Arizona law that's not exactly, you know, you wouldn't lay it on top of the Pennsylvania law, but it's it does not allow ballot harvesting, which is a Republican issue in Pennsylvania. And it also says, look, if you vote in the wrong precinct, if you show up, you know, you're supposed to be you know, voting in, uh, you know, Westchester and you vote up to vote in Chester. You know, sorry, that's on you. You know, that's not the job of the state to track down what your actual ballot, you know, uh, precinct is and transport your ballot securely over there. No, you're just done. And the court overwhelmingly voted six, three, that this was allowable, that the state wasn't doing anything wrong. The uh, dissent was not, according to legal experts, was not particularly strong. Even the Biden administration, which uh, wanted to reverse a, a message from the Trump administration. So the, you know, this court, go, this case gets taken by the Supreme Court. The Trump administration says, yes, we're with Arizona. We love Arizona. Go Arizona. The Biden administration, instead of sending a letter going, hey, we're the new administration. Forget that. They sent a letter that said, you know, it's probably OK. So pretty much everybody's over on that side of the table. But I think what it does, uh, Charlie, tell me if I'm wrong, is this is yet another reminder that the Constitution lets states run their own elections. And all these plans to have the feds step in, uh, you know, the, the entire Democratic delegation from Pennsylvania in D.C. supported the uh, H.R. 1 Act. You know, th this is 
this is another obstacle that Democrats are going to face as they try to avoid what's normal, which is the state of Pennsylvania runs the state of Pennsylvania's elections. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the ironic thing is that, you know, if you compare Pennsylvania, let's say to Georgia, and the new Georgia voter law, we're more restricted. So when I, when I saw the Department of Justice announced that they were suing um, the state of Georgia, I, the first thing I thought to myself was, what are they going to sue Pennsylvania? Bingo. Because surely we're in worse shape than Georgia is for on a variety of, and I've written about that for Delaware Valley Journal. Sure. So, you know, the, the good news here is that ultimately what the Supreme Court is signaling is that we're not going to be the arbiters of election law in the states. Um, and in fact, had they done that, there would probably be a different state senator in the 45th senatorial district in Pennsylvania with Jim Brewster and Nicole uh, Ziccarelli. Mm -hmm. You know, ultimately, only Justice Thomas really felt the court should get involved in that case. And, um, you know, I, I happen to agree with Justice Thomas, and I do think what was done there was wrong. But, uh, you know, it is at least intellectually consistent, which is the states have a right to determine how they're going to run their elections and election laws are going to be different across state lines, but that's just the way it is. And that's how our founders uh, decided it would be. And ultimately, if you don't like your state's election laws, there's no one preventing you from moving to a state that you do like the election laws or, so, running, uh, <laughs> for, or running for the legislature, getting elected and changing the laws, which is a great Absolutely. thing, which is, and, and that's it, one thing that I, I, I don't think we have enough uh, respect for the idea that the legislature passes a law and then a couple of years later they go back and say, you know, we learned stuff and that's why we get to vote again. And we're going to fix things and whatever the issue is, whether it's tax right. rates and, or schools, whatever. And to your point, that's exactly what the Republicans did with the new, um, the, the voter ID law. And, and actually it was a, a more than just voter ID, as I mentioned. So they, they watched two election cycles, gathered information. The house held, uh, I think it was 12 hearings over over a period of several months. The Senate did the same thing, and they came to those conclusions. Uh, Democrats were a part of the process. They were welcome to be a part of the process. Um, there was also an instance where Republicans tried to get a nonpartisan legislative budget and finance commission to do a study, and ultimately the Democrats blocked that as well. Um, so, you know, again, there, there was a, a good faith effort here to update the laws, Governor Wolf has done what he's really good at, which is just simply saying, no, I'm not going to work with Republicans, I'm going to veto that. Right. And uh, again, that, that's what he did. And, and ultimately, part of his legacy is going to be one of a very adversarial relationship with the legislature and one where he used his veto early and often, mm -hmm. um, especially with budgets and on policy initiatives that he did not like. Uh, it has taken until now with coronavirus for Republicans to go the route of well, if we don't like it, we're just going to put it on the ballot and let the voters decide through referendum. And uh, I think one of Wolf's legacies will be that when initiatives aren't being uh, approved by a Democratic governor, or if the situation switches where you have a Republican governor and a Democratic legislature, which is entirely possible in Pennsylvania, um, that the Democrat legislature is going to go to the people and they're going to ask for a referendum on the Constitution. So we've really kind of set ourselves up for that moving forward. And, and with that, thanks so much, Charlie O'Neill. You can read his stuff at uh, DelawareValleyJournal.com. By the way, great piece uh, featuring Representative Williams from the uh, uh, Delaware Valley and uh, who was very adamant about the voting rights. I was kind of taken aback. So look for 
the, uh, the piece over there. Governor Wolf, why are you afraid of voter IDs? It's all there. But right now, Bruce Castor speaks to the Delaware Valley Journal. Counselor. How about now? Ah, there we go. Excellent. Excellent. We both use screens, Counselor, because we're in the witness relocation program, so we cannot reveal our location, et cetera. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> we, I understand you must have done some bad things to get there. I don't want to talk about it. I don't let's, you know, don't ask, don't tell. That's my motto. So, uh, Bruce, what is the deal with the uh, memo that you signed with Cosby and his lawyers uh, way back when? Uh, there isn't any memo with Cosby and the lawyers. The the, the memo that the um, that the Supreme Court opinion refers to is my memo to the district attorney's office in September of 2015, reminding them of what happened in 20, uh, 2005 and saying that you can't go ahead with Cosby uh, because that deposition was taken because uh, um, I agree that he wouldn't be prosecuted. The writing that um, exists on the issue of whether he would be prosecuted or not is the press release that I wrote uh, in February of 2005 um, that I signed where I announced that we wouldn't prosecute him. That triggers the, the uh, domino uh, of uh, um, Cosby being unable to use his Fifth Amendment privilege uh, in his civil case against him. So it was basically a gentleman's agreement no, there's no agreement. I, it's it's amazing how many times reporters have asked me about an agreement and assume the fact in the question. There was a statement from me, a definitive statement from me, not that I, that the government, the Commonwealth, would not prosecute Cosby. As a direct result of that, there doesn't need to be anything on his end. He doesn't have to agree or disagree. He's not going to be prosecuted. He automatically loses his Fifth Amendment privilege. So there's no, there is no agreement that needs to be reached. And why did you do that? I did that because I had concluded there was not enough evidence to win the case. And um, at that point, I have two choices. I can do nothing and hope the case gets better over time, uh, which in this instance means a confession because it couldn't got any better. All the problems with the case would still have been there. Um, and I didn't think a confession was likely. Uh, but I could have I could have done nothing, or I could have done something, and I chose to do something, and that something was create uh, an atmosphere where, uh, if he was sued, Cosby would have to sit for a deposition, and he couldn't point to me and say, "Well, that guy might lock me up if I say something incriminating," so I'm not going to talk at my at my deposition in the civil case. And I decided that lawyers who knew what they were doing would know what to do with that. So I I made that decision uh, so that when he was sued, he wouldn't have the Fifth Amendment as a shield. Do you think the Supreme Court's ruling vindicated you? Well, I mean, the, the Supreme Court decision not only accurately outlines my thinking, but it, it certainly seems as though the Supreme Court agreed with my thinking and rationale at the time. And frankly, I don't know that I had any other choice as a, you know, you remember the atmosphere in the DA's office, uh, the Mike Marino era, we always tried to figure out a way to get something out of nothing. And this was a way of getting something out of nothing. And so people ask me, you know, do I uh, wish I had done something different? I don't know what I could have done any differently because if I had done nothing, he never would have been arrested. 
Uh, there might have been a civil suit. She may or may not have won that, but that would have been the end of it. And uh, we never would have had anything um, guaranteed. And what I wanted to do was create what I thought was a guaranteed win for her civilly. So what, what else could I do? Um, I, I had been doing that job for 20 years and I thought I was pretty good at it. So I thought I knew that there was enough, not enough evidence to win. In fact, when they prosecuted Cosby the first time, they had the deposition, which I didn't have, of course, and they had one other victim and they couldn't win the case then. Uh, the Supreme Court yesterday said that um, if you look closely at, the, at all the decisions, they, wouldn't, they weren't gonna allow all those women to testify anyway, so the case was gonna get reversed on that anyhow. So the case still hasn't gotten any better uh, other than that deposition, which now the Supreme Court says they couldn't use. So I'm trying to figure out what other options were available to me that I could have chosen. What, what, what was door number three? Uh, Bruce, this is Michael Graham. Um, what made the case, when, when you have a situation where you have somebody who has up to 60 women who've made accusations, you know, to the average person who's not a lawyer, they just look at this guy and it seems like, you know, he must be super guilty. Uh, what made the case so difficult to prosecute? Because my understanding is that he said, she said cases do, in fact, get prosecuted fairly regularly. Well, you, you mix two things up there. Uh, okay. There's... um. None of those 60 people were available to me. I didn't know about any of them. They all came out in 2014, 2015. Uh, so none of them were available to me. So I didn't even have to decide whether I could have used any of them because they didn't exist. I, they were unknown to me. Uh, they only became available uh, after the record was unsealed in the civil case in 2014. Uh, and then people came in and said that they also had been molested. Now, this is still the United States where you're, when, if you're a victim of a crime, you're, you go to the police and say you were victimized and, and the police investigate it and they arrest if they think there's enough evidence. And then there's a trial where you confront your accuser. Uh, so having 60 other people say that Cosby molested them and none of them went to the police is not very helpful. Uh, and in, as a general rule, such evidence is inadmissible in criminal matters throughout the United States uh, and very uh, much so in, in Pennsylvania. And in fact, the Supreme Court said that they weren't going to have allowed that. So the existence of those 60 people that you pointed out right. to, A, were not available to me in 2005, none of them, and B, um, none of them went to the police, so there's no investigation. And C, none of them would have been allowed to testify. So that's irrelevant to the analysis of a prosecutor deciding whether to make an arrest. Now, he said, she said cases are arrested uh, and prosecuted all the time. Uh, but in this particular instance, you had uh, issues with um, the uh, evidence that um, we had uh, because it came in a, a year after the fact. So there was no effort, no ability to forensically back anything up. And there were a number of aspects to what uh, the complaining witness told us that um, I felt uh, created inconsistencies uh, in the case and made the case difficult to prosecute. All of these things the Supreme Court pointed out uh, in its opinion. Um, and um, the Supreme Court uh, opinion agrees with me that these are insurmountable problems for a prosecutor to overcome in arresting uh, somebody. Did the Supreme so, Court's ruling have any, uh, in uh, add any to the conversation about claims, your decision 
and the uh, the way that uh, Mr. Cosby was able to testify uh, didn't follow the state's immunity statute because it didn't have a, an agreement in writing with the plaintiff's attorney. And that that issue has been raised several times in the past. Did that did that get resolved in this case? Yes, because uh, as again, this is this is like reporters' questions asking, assuming a fact which is not exactly evident, uh, because this was never an immunity deal. So therefore, all the statutes that that apply to the granting of immunity don't apply to this situation. This was a decision by the the uh, chief legal officer of Montgomery County, which made me the chief legal officer for the Commonwealth uh, for cases that occurred in Montgomery County. It was my decision that he was not going to be prosecuted with the intent to bind the Commonwealth to that decision. That by doing that, I automatically remove from Cosby the Fifth Amendment shield that all Americans ordinarily enjoy because they of the risk right. of being prosecuted has been removed. So yet when people ask me, uh, this was an immunity deal and you didn't follow the immunity rules, it's the question assumes a fact which is not true. And that, that's that it was an immunity deal and it never was. Did Cosby's fame have anything to do with your decision? No, of, of course not. I mean, the again, you've known me a long time. If I could, if I thought I could have arrested Cosby and convicted him, not only would I have done it, I'd have done it myself. And <laughs> so uh, there's no question about that. Um, the, uh, uh, I wasn't afraid of anybody then or now, and, um, there, therefore his fame, all that did was tell me that he was going to have lawyers who knew what they were doing, which is helpful when you're trying to decide what we're going to do. Well, we really appreciate your time. I have just one last question and it's, you know, the hindsight 2020 question. I put you in a time machine. I send you back to 2005, knowing what you know now, what, if anything, do you do differently? Nothing. Bruce Castor, thanks so much for joining us for the Delaware Valley Journal podcast. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Delaware Valley Journal podcast. You can find us at DelawareValleyJournal.com, on Twitter at DV underscore journal, and on Facebook, just search Delaware Valley. And please be sure to sign up for our twice a week newsletter with all the latest coverage from the Delaware Valley. I am Michael Graham. The Delaware Valley Journal is on the air.